This month, at the beginning of our services, I've been taking a few minutes to uh, do a little Q&A about our church. We've talked about the difference between elders and deacons and what is meant by the term church session. Last week, we talked about how financial decisions are made in our church. And this morning, I'd like to take just a moment to talk about uh, how we think about our worship services, what we uh, hope and trust that God will do, uh, what thought goes behind the planning of our worship services. And um, let me take just a moment to speak about that. We believe always that our corporate worship services, when we come together on Sunday mornings, when God's people gather, are to be focused upon God himself. We want our worship services to be God-focused, God-centered. When we think about singing songs of worship, we want to recognize that God is the audience, and we, the whole body, just not the people on the stage, are really the choir. We want God's word to be honored. Uh, we want his spirit to be present. We want to honor the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst, and we pray that he will be at work to meet the needs of people. Only God could possibly meet the diversity of needs that are represented in this room through a service of worship. And we're here to exalt him. We're here to honor him. Now, how about the, the teaching, the messages we do? Well, we always want them to be God-honoring, of course, based upon his word, targeted primarily to those who are believers at beginning stages or even more mature, because as we read through the New Testament, we see that most of it is directed toward disciples, written to churches to teach believers how to live and how to grow in their faith. But we recognize and we hope that we will always have present among us those who are not yet believers, those whom we might refer to as seekers, people who are open to coming to a worship service but haven't yet embraced Jesus is Lord. They're not yet his disciples or his followers. And the teaching of the New Testament, particularly in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is this, that we should make things that happen in the church in a gathered worship service understandable. We don't have to compromise one thing about the teaching of the Bible. We can talk about the most difficult topics that the Bible presents, even topics like judgment and hell. As long as we do it in a way that is loving and that is understandable. The last thing we want to do is compromise some teaching of God's word to try to make people comfortable. When we were planning the start of our church just over 20 years ago, it was, it was pretty popular in American church culture uh, to make much of focusing worship services on the person who is not yet a believer. Sometimes services like this were called seeker-focused or, or seeker-targeted. And I can remember visiting a, a church in another city, and um, everything was really cool about the service. The use of technology was, was pretty neat, pretty interesting. But I left there feeling like I got little, if anything, of God's Word there. It's kind of like if you can imagine being invited to a... Uh, a person's house for an event at 7 p.m. And 
You normally eat dinner at 6, but you don't eat dinner because you, you think you're going to a, a party that's at dinner at 7 p.m. And you get there at 7 p.m., and you're pretty hungry, but everybody's standing around having a good, good time, and, and there's a bowl of popcorn and some cheese and crackers, and you see no, no meal in sight, and you hang around the other cheese and crackers, and you're starving, and you begin to eat, and you eat a lot of popcorn, and you realize this, is not a, this wasn't supposed to be a dinner. And you leave there on the way home, you stop and get a burger because you're hungry. That's the way I felt leaving that service. And whether a person is a believer or a seeker, a not yet Christian, I think what they need when they come to a corporate worship service is the experience of the presence of God and the teaching of His Word. Because it's God's Word that reveals who He is. He's chosen to reveal Himself through His Word. His Word, like Matthew read a moment ago, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It illumines us. It helps us understand. So that's how we think about worship. We want our service to be God-focused, God-centered. Yes, we're teaching believers how to live. That's the primary focus of the New Testament. But we also want to be sensitive to the presence of seekers, not by compromising one thing taught in the Bible, but by making it, as much as possible, understandable and presenting it in a way that is loving. Above all things, we want to honor God's presence here because it is His Spirit, His presence, that alone can meet the diversity of needs in a room full of people like this. So we want to honor Him, exalt Him, and welcome the work of His Holy Spirit. Well, this morning we will conclude our short series, our four-week series, on the topic of guidance. And as I mentioned last week, God has shown Himself to be a guide to His people from beginning to end in the Bible. Jacob, one of the Old Testament patriarchs, as he's dying, is honoring God in his statement that God is the one who has been my shepherd all the days of my life. Throughout the book of Genesis, we see God guiding his people and then revealing himself as their shepherd. King David, when he wrote the 23rd Psalm, referred to God as the Lord my shepherd who leads me in paths of righteousness. When Jesus introduces himself in the Gospels and the New Testament, he takes that title too. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus is later called the great shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd and bishop of our souls. And before Jesus goes to the cross and is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven, he says, when I go, I'll send the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he will guide you. He will guide you into all truth. God has always been a guide for his people. And though we know that, we all face challenges when it comes to making decisions. I certainly know I do. Maybe you're here today. And uh, you're confronted with a decision that's a significant one about a job, maybe a job change. Uh, maybe it's a decision about a relationship in which you need God's guidance. Maybe it's a move, move to another house, another city, another place. Maybe it's a major purchase. Maybe it's whether to have a hard conversation with somebody at school or in your family or at work. 
And this morning, I'd like to just briefly look at some biblical principles that I think uh, could help us, direct us as we seek to discern God's guidance. An outline is found on the back of your bulletin if it helps you to use that. But the first is this, as we seek to discern God's guidance, seek God's guidance with the willingness to do His will. You see on the screen a verse from John chapter 7 where Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching, that is the teaching Christ is bringing, is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The willingness to do God's will puts us in a position to understand his will. The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 58, records the fact that God's people were, were crying out to him, wondering why they had fasted and sought God, but they had not seemingly been answered. And Isaiah, throughout this 58th chapter, goes on to explain that it's because you're unwilling to live in accord with God's will and God's ways, that you should pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, don't oppress your workers as you're doing. Then your light will rise in the darkness, your gloom be as the noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually. To be guided by God, we need to be willing to, to obey His guidance. We want to know His will, we've got to be willing to, to walk in His will. And I think the problem sometimes for us as Christians is that we keep certain compartments in our lives certain areas of life kind of sequestered away from God, from His influence. That is, if your life is like a home, sometimes we have a little hidden room, although in reality, nothing is hidden from God. Often a person will say, well, I want to be a Christian, I want to go to church, I want to be involved, I believe in God, but there's an area of my life that I don't want God messing with may have something to do with entertainment you choose, maybe pornography use, it may be your money. You may say, God, I want to know your will, I want you to lead me and guide me, but I don't want you telling me what to do with my money. There's certain areas of life that we try to keep from God, but if we want his guidance, we need to be willing to follow where he leads. If we want his guidance, we need to be willing to walk in his ways. The willingness to do God's will puts us in a position to be guided by his hand more fully into his will. Second biblical principle for guidance, it's one that Pastor Andrew touched on uh, when he spoke a couple weeks ago, and that is to seek God's guidance in Scripture. As Matthew read a moment ago from Psalm 119, the writer of the psalm says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The Apostle Peter used similar language in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he talked about the fact that he and James and John had this remarkable experience when they went up on a mountain with Jesus and he was transfigured before them. And they had this remarkable, remarkable experience. And as he reflects upon that, he says something amazing. He says, but we have the prophetic word made more sure. Something more sure, more certain, even than that beautiful vision of Christ that they had. And he tells us that that is the Scripture. 
That which is inspired by God. The beautiful thing about Scripture, all of it inspired by God, it's, it's an overarching form of guidance by which we can evaluate any other type of guidance. If Scripture speaks clearly to us in an area of life, we know we have God's guidance in that area of life because God does not contradict himself. He doesn't uh, inspire Scripture to say and teach one thing and then guide us in a way that's contradictory to that. That's the beautiful thing about learning and studying and knowing more about the Bible is that it, it just helps us more fully to know the mind of God and his ways and his will and how he's dealt with people in the past. And as we get to know him better in that way, we become more able to discern his guidance in specific areas of our life. But we all know scripture doesn't speak to every decision we make. It doesn't tell you which house to buy which person to date, which person to marry, which car to buy, where to go to school. Might give some general guidance, but not the specific guidance that we sometimes seek. And in those cases, it's helpful to follow another biblical principle, and I think it's an important one, and that is to seek wise counsel. Throughout Scripture, particularly in the book of Proverbs, as you'll see in the verses on the screen, we see the importance of counsel. The writer of Proverbs 11 says, where there's no guidance of people false, but in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. Counselors provide safety in discerning God's guidance, making decisions. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Proverbs 15 says, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. In Proverbs 24, for by wise guidance, you can wage a war, and in abundance of counselors, there's victory. For major decisions of life, if God's word doesn't speak clearly to your decision, it is wise and helpful to get good advice. Now, if you're married... It certainly makes sense to counsel with your spouse. I often get counsel advice from my wife. It makes sense that if God has called two people together, he will help them together, together to better discern his will. But if you're faced with a major decision in life, a major decision, like moving somewhere, taking another job, seek someone's counsel in prayer. Seek counsel from a, an elder, a pastor, a spiritual leader, small group leader. Don't make a hasty decision with a major life decision. I've, I've sometimes talked to people who've told me, um, you know, we made a really quick decision to, to uh, move. We didn't really seek advice or prayer. And um, now we're, we're wishing we'd done that. We're kind of wondering if we made the right decision. But a biblical principle is that a wise person does get counsel, does listen to advice. And then finally, seek to glorify God in all you do. The verse on the screen is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. It says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And it's important to understand the context of this verse. It's a really interesting chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because the Apostle Paul is answering questions from the church. 
He's giving them guidance about something that was a, was a very uh, common issue in their culture for the new Christians. And the issue is this, whether you could or should eat meat sold in the, the meat markets that had been offered in sacrifice to idols. In the temples in those days, meat, uh, meat of a cow or a sheep or something might, might have been sacrificed to an idol in the temple. And rather than getting rid of it afterwards, it'd be taken to a meat market and, and sold. So there'd be a meat market often right outside of a temple. Now, the Apostle Paul is altogether against idol worship 100%. He says that the things that he even sacrificed, they're sacrificing to demons. The question is, can you eat the meat? And so that's what 1 Corinthians 10 is all about. The Apostle Paul is essentially saying, as a believer, you know, uh, an idol is nothing. You know, uh, if you're good conscience, you know the Lord, you're not causing by to stumble, it's, it's okay. But if an unbeliever invites you to his house, he's selling meat offered in sacrifice to idol, idols, and somebody else points out, hey, that's... That's meat that was offered to idols. He's he's saying, don't be a stumbling block for that person. Don't do it for the sake of that person. And his summary is this. Whether you eat or whether you drink, do all you do to the glory of God. Now, that is a, a broad and a wonderful life principle. And it's one that can help us make major decisions. We can ask, will this path that I'm choosing Will it help me draw closer to God, or is it a path that's likely to pull me away from God? Will this decision enable me to glorify God, or will it hinder me from glorifying God? And so, in summary, let me just suggest four questions we can ask when we're facing a big decision in life. The first one is this. Am I willing to do God's will? I'm seeking his guidance. Am I willing for him to guide me, not only in this decision, but in other areas of life? Or am I keeping things compartmentalized away from God's control and guidance? Am I willing to do his will? Secondly, is there scripture to guide me in this decision? The better you know the Bible, the better you'll be able to make big decisions in life. God will never guide us in a way that's contrary to Scripture. But make sure you understand the Scripture in its context, its intended meaning. Is there someone whose counsel I should seek? If you're a student, a major decision, I would encourage you, a, a, a middle school, high school student, elementary, seek the guidance of your parents. Even if you don't think they're the most spiritual people in the world, they love you and they know you probably better than anybody else. You're always welcome to come to one of us uh, on our church staff, our pastors, for counsel, our elders, our leaders. Which path will enable me to best glorify God? We've all struggled with guidance. We've all struggled with discerning God's will. There is only one person who has ever walked upon this earth, only one who has ever done perfectly, always, sinlessly God's will and that was Jesus God the Son as you see in the verse on the screen from John chapter 8 and verse 29 Jesus said of the Father he who sent me is with me he's not left me alone for I 
always do the things that are pleasing to him. Always. Jesus, always, every moment, walked in the steps guided by God the Father. He says elsewhere in his prayer to God the Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Perfectly fulfilled the Father's will, accomplished everything he gave him to do. However, the Father's will for Jesus the Son was incredibly difficult because the Father's will led him to the cross. The prophet Isaiah, writing about the Messiah, Jesus, over 700 years before the birth of Christ, in Isaiah 53, wrote these words about the Savior to come. He wrote, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And we read that thinking, how could that be God the Father's will to crush the Son? We know God the Father perfectly loves the Son. Isaiah 53, 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Isaiah 53, 10 continues, when his soul, that is the Messiah's soul, makes an offering for guilt, he will see his offspring. The offspring is a reference to, to those of us who receive his salvation. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There on the cross, Jesus fulfilled the will of the Lord. He made that offering of his life that Isaiah talked about. His sinless life for our sinful lives his resurrection to give us eternal life, his sacrifice for our salvation. Jesus did that. There on the cross, he bore the judgment, the wrath of God, the punishment we deserved. He bore it in his own body on the cross to bring us to God, to enable us to be considered righteous as he is righteous by God the Father. This was the will of God for Jesus and he perfectly accomplished it so that you and I could be adopted as God's own children and empowered then to live a life that would give him glory, to live lives that would give him glory. So central is what Jesus did in fulfilling the Father's will on the cross that the Apostle Paul, writing to the church, gave us a way to always reflect upon it, recognize its importance of visible tangible way to remember what Jesus did. And we call it the Lord's Supper or communion. Maybe you've heard it called the Eucharist. The Apostle Paul wrote about it with the words you see on the screen. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you choose to take the bread and juice in a minute, that's what you're doing. You're making a visible proclamation. That Jesus' death was for you. It has been received by you. 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Those final two sentences um, give us a good reason to pray in just a moment and ask God to search our hearts and prepare us to take communion in the right way. I think in part what the Apostle Paul is saying there is this, this thing is important. It's serious. It's significant. Make sure that you're not treating it too lightly or dismissing it as some mere religious uh, tradition, but that you have indeed received the benefits of what Jesus did on the cross. You've accepted his salvation so that when you take the bread and the juice, you're taking it sincerely. It's also a time for us to search our hearts and ask God to renew our devotion and renew our faith and forgive us and cleanse us from any sin that is harming our fellowship with him or with others. So I'd like to take a moment now to, to pray and take a, a moment of silence. And then after that, I'll ask you, ask that we say, express our common faith together um, with the Apostles' Creed. Oh, first, let's pray. Father, I especially pray this morning for anyone here who has never transferred their trust to what Jesus did on the cross as he fulfilled your high and holy will. Father, would you bring your spiritual understanding to any who has never embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior? For those of us who have, Lord, we recognize that we've stumbled in many ways. And we ask that you bring to mind any sin we should confess, any person we should forgive. Work in us now, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus.